What up, what up, what up, and welcome to Cinema Snorkel. It's a podcast where we dive below the surface of the themes and ideas within movies. I'm Casey. And I'm Carlin. And welcome to our episode on one of the best movies ever made. My personal favorite standalone movie. Whoa. I gotta clarify that because yeah. I feel like such a basic dude of my age demographic, <laughs> but Lord of the Rings. Oh, I'm already yeah. ringing up Lord of the Rings. Okay, but, <laughs> but enough of that. <laughs> We're talking about Inception. Inception. Let me ask you a question. You, you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the... Uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? We're dreaming. You're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. Stay calm. One thing is for sure, this film revolutionized soundtracks forever. Movie soundtracks have never been the same since 2010 because of this exact movie. Describe to me what you mean by that. You know exactly what I mean. It's the horn blasts. It's the horn blasts. Yeah, Hans Zimmer just broke the game wide open. Yeah. In fact, if you're listening to this, go watch a trailer for anything right now. I guarantee you there'll be some horn blasts. Anything. I mean, the Elmo movie. Elmo in Grouchland. I mean, Minions. Minions Rise of Gru. They're going to have horn blasts. Guarantee it. Carlin, how has Inception changed your life? Uh, it's a great... Oh, man. I just even YouTubed a couple scenes from it, and it near, brought me near to tears. Um, I didn't even have to watch the whole movie to remember how emotionally impactful this... Uh, film is. Can we just talk through a quick summary just to refresh if, if this movie came out a long time ago? Garland, my summaries are bogus. So how about you? Why don't you do a summary? My summaries are I'm not terrible. Argue since, with you. Nope. Um, I'm, I'm summary shy. I really messed up. Okay. Inception is the story of Dominic Cobb, who is a dream architect and thief. And he, through a tragic series of events, is unable to return to his home in the United States because his wife went crazy and framed him for murdering her. I'm going to tell this not in the sequence that the film gives us these facts. I'm going to do it in the sequence sure. of chronological order because that's how the story exists in my mind. So he has this idea, one last job for the right client who is going to be able to fix his murder charges. And the job is Inception. Is it impossible? Well, he knows that it's not impossible because he's done it before. But Inception, instead of breaking into someone's dream to steal uh, an idea, you break in someone's dream and plant an idea. And you have to do this very delicately because the brain is an incredible organ and it's able to almost always trace the origin of an idea so he and his team have to go layers and layers and layers deep into fisher's subconscious to plant this idea so that he will they can satisfy the client and so they can break up this guy's corporate, corporate empire. empire but the the problem comes when maul who exists in in dom's dream life because she's real to him um, as a projection, is able to break into whatever they're doing and sabotage their attempts. And her goal is to try to get Dom to live with her forever in the dream world. 
And she can do that by messing up their plans. So Dom has to figure out like, how am I going to reconcile this horrible tragedy in my life? How am I going to get home to my kids? And how are we all going to live happily ever after? That's my summary. Love it. Good, good, great, su- great summary. <laughs> Thanks. It's a wonderful movie. It's the best movie. It's like the best movie. It's a movie for people who want to talk about themes. And, and it's not like yes. you're going to get it on the first. It's not for your average consumer. This is for people who love movies and really want to be immersed into this really intense world and they want to be paying attention and catch all the Easter eggs and like put all the pieces together and pay attention to the themes. Chris Nolan, I really think, redefined what it what a good movie is with this movie. And there's so many clever things within the movie. I mean, it feels in some ways like a lesson in psychology. Yeah. Because you're playing with, it's like almost sci-fi in, in the true sense of the word where they're playing with concepts that are scientifically plausible. Uh-huh. It's not fantasy in that it takes place in a totally different world than the world we're living in. It's more like sci-fi, which is playing with ideas in our world that could conceivably occur. Well, and the the science part being like, yeah, dream psychology and all that and just straight up psychology and the fiction part being you can share dreams. So what if what would happen in a world where you could do this thing called dream sharing and there was a whole industry built around stealing and implanting ideas? Yeah. In people's brains. What do you like about this movie, Carlin? What are some other things? I love the humor that kind of that kind of dry wily sense of humor it's not really wily eames eames and uh arthur are like going back and forth yeah where he's like um what's a kick he goes this area is a kick and he like kicks his leg and falls it's just funny to me i like that that's clever yeah Yeah. the pacing of the the script writing is it's one of those technically excellent aspects of the movie that make it so fun to watch yeah nothing is wasted but nothing is like prolonged they don't miss a beat it's it's just excellent screenwriting speaking of timing they play a lot with the concepts of time because in a dream it's like times five or whatever right did you know that the length of the film is exactly um the length of the song you know the french song i call it the cat song meow 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 nice because none of us are ever going to be able to sing the words as much as I've wanted to over the no, years, try yeah, to sing that song. You can't. Try but, it. Try it right now in your home. Try singing that song. Yeah, nobody's <laughs> listening. We're not listening. Yeah, we're not listening. <laughs> you sound ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. That's fine. Um, the length of the song is like proportionate to the length of the film. I don't know the exact numbers. But that's an intentional Easter egg. Like, whoa. Like, I wonder if, like, all the combined uh, scenes when from the moment he starts the music uh-huh. and drives the van equal the length of the song. Yeah. Is it that? Is that what it's you're saying? It's something like that. Yeah. And then they. But it's the length uh, of the movie. It's like super meta. Yeah, stuff like that. It's beautiful. It's a work of art. The world building's incredible. There are so many moments of like minor reveals where you're like, oh man, that is fascinating. Like when yeah. he, when Cobb is sitting with Ariadne at this cafe mm-hmm. and in a movie, we're just transported to the cafe mid scene. But what they do then is go, so how did, how did we get here? How did we get to this cafe? Ooh, yeah. And when she can't answer him, we, the audience get goosebumps as we realize what what's happening along with her. I just think like storytelling like that where they're where they're revealing things slowly and they're showing you yeah. what it is in the world 
they do that so well. Yeah, he really wields the medium of filmmaking to its best advantage. So let's get into the ideas. Okay. I had three major themes that I pulled out of this movie, but I want to hear what you would say to these. Yeah, shoot. Here they are. The first is the power of ideas. Okay. An idea is like a parasite. Second of all, what is reality? It's like the tension between these this dream world that we could create in our own minds, and it's easy to lose track of what's actually real in that situation. And third, what do we do with loss and pain, but specifically, and we'll get into this, guilt. How do we handle guilt? Yeah. And under that theme, maybe we can talk about catharsis. Oh, absolutely. So, Carlin, the power of ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, One question I had as I watched this again recently was some of the things are just incredible set pieces for the story. Uh And they're not actually like... um, the story isn't necessarily about them, but they are like an integral part of the set and that makes them important okay. in in what's happening. I think the power of ideas is maybe one of those. Like it's actually not the central theme, but it is a real theme there and right. it does matter to the plot. Like they're making assumptions about human psychology yeah. in order to drive the plot forward. Because the film wants to say ideas are, are powerful. They are the most resilient yeah. uh, thing. Do you think that that's where they land? Well, yeah, because I mean, just sometimes I think for a minute, if you zoom out of the dream and we we're in the thick of it, like car chases and gunshots and it's like all this craziness happening. But if you zoom out, what really happened in reality, a bunch of guys got an airplane, they all fell asleep and then they woke up and like, that's what happened. But what Fisher walks away with is he's had this dream that kind of challenged some of his assumptions and made him think about some things that he'd maybe never thought of before. And then he walks away with, for the first time, the inkling of an idea. Maybe I should, you know, dissolve my father's empire and build something for myself. Maybe that's what my father would have wanted me to do. All the plot that we witness is all to get us to this one moment where just the very breath of an idea enters Fisher's mind. I had a professor at Oxford University say this, and I, it's so profound. It stuck with me ever since. He said, we're all under the influence of books we've never read. Ooh, unpack that a little bit. Just the history of ideas leads us to where we are today. Yeah. We're born with definitely desires. We're born with like uh, hardware that's like our brain chemistry and even the physical world around us is going to lead us to certain conclusions. Mm -hmm. And you see that all humans for all time have grappled with sort of the same basic set of worldview life questions. Mm -hmm. Who am I? What am I doing here? Where am I going? How do I live the good life? What is the good life? And whether you think you have an answer to that, like whether you've consciously thought, oh, yeah, that's what I want, you're, you're going for a goal. Right. And so what we want to say is that goal for you is shaped by the ideas of culture, which are frequently found in the books of intellectuals that none of us have the patience or wherewithal to read. To me, it feels like ideas are the same as our perception of there's reality and then there's our perception of reality and then our ideas, which are our perception of reality and and we base our actions on those ideas, right? So if ideas have influence over how we live our lives, does it matter the connection between the perception and what's actual? 
like the physical real world? What does the movie say about that? Yeah, now that is a question that the movie tackles head on. Yeah. And I think it leads to the second theme, what is reality? And does it matter? Uh-huh. Does reality actually matter? Right. It seems the to me what the movie is starting off by saying is, first of all, there is a reality. It's not like all reality is just a, a exists in your subconscious. It's like the Matrix. You can wake up from the dream and there's a real waking world. So that's kind of their first premise. But then they say more about it. Well, then they muddy the waters a little bit. So, right, remember uh-huh. at the very beginning, Dom's father-in-law says a line, he says, come back to reality, Dom, please. And Dom responds by saying, those kids, your grandkids, they're waiting for me to come home. That's their reality. So Dom already, ooh, we're like introduced to the complexity of his grappling with what reality is because he has been so like soaked in the dream world uh-huh. that he is starting to lose track of his ability uh, to decide what's real and what's the dream world. Yeah. And the guy calls him out on it when they're going to test the, um, when they go to test the sedatives, mm-hmm. he's like, who are you to say otherwise? Yeah. The dream has become there. And you see all those sleepers that they live in the dream. Yeah. That's their reality. They've chosen that. And he sees that and it freaks him out a little bit because uh, he's not really sure himself. Yeah. And the movie is so unafraid to actually raise that question seriously and force us to yeah. deal with it. Because yeah. in the dream world, his wife is still alive. Yeah. And you think maybe there's actually a way in which this is going to, you know, well, no, you don't. <laughs> You're filled with foreboding, but but you see his struggle. You see his tension. Because in the real world, things are horrible for him. He can't see his kids. His wife is dead. And, it, and she's a terrifying, absolutely unhinged in real life. And that's a horrible, tragic reality. So the dream is tantalizing because he could go back to the best parts of his life in the dream. Yeah, supposedly, right. And the movie kind of offers that, like, hey, you know, you could, but it doesn't land there. No. So on that question of what is reality, Cobb himself is so lost in what he's doing. Um, Like, and he's got these rules that are actually very sound rules for keeping track of reality. He's got his totem. So he holds on to that one. No one's ever allowed to touch someone else's totem. But think about it. He has that rule because we find out he started spinning that same top, which was his wife's totem in the dream world. And that's when you realize how much time Cobb spends doing things he says never to do. Right. And that singular action started for his wife, this cascading idea that convinced her her world isn't real. So he, by messing with that like marker between reality and the dream world, he messed up someone's entire life. And you see him then say, okay, well, uh, don't worry. Mm -hmm. The people in this dream are just projections. But when Maul drops down at the very end to kill Fisher in the final like snow inner chamber, Cobb won't shoot Maul. He hesitates because he's lost track of what's real and what's what's false. Because she represents like this traumatic moment in his history, she's kind of the thing that unravels him. He doesn't know what's real when it concerns Maul. Right. Other times he's fine, but she's pressing in and pressing in and getting closer and closer till finally he can't escape her anymore. Like she'll drive a freight train straight through the streets of New York City or like she'll just absolutely shoot Fisher in the back of the head and like he can't keep her out anymore. And that's what Ariadne keeps 
reminding him is like, look, right. you're putting us all at risk here, but your subconscious is falling to pieces. You've got to deal with this eventually. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So how they resolve the question of reality is intimately tied up with how they resolve the question of guilt. So maybe we should move on to that third theme. Yeah, let's talk about that. What do we do with guilt? Ariadne is such an amazing foil to Dom because she lives firmly in at least relational reality. She's uh-huh. new to the game and has her heads like screwed on yeah. rightly. So she's right. not afraid to courageously confront Dom and, and force him to say, listen, you need to live in the truth, at least for the sake of the people around us. If you don't tell them the truth, then I will. Yeah. And she's like the voice of both reality and sort of conscience for the team. And it's amazing to watch the interplay of those. Um, She's compassionate, but she's truth telling. But Dom's central thing is that he's dealing with the guilt of having poisoned his wife's view of reality. And the further they go into the dreamscape, the more they have to deal with that. That guilt is like a prison for him. And and to escape from it, he tries to like build the world in his dreams where she's still alive. And it's the time they had before all the, this horrible thing he did. But it, he can't keep it out. Like, his guilt has a grip on him. So in one level, Carlin, as I watched this the, the last time, I just felt like the link between reality and relationships was made really clear to me. Hmm. And I do think that they actually want to land there as they resolve both of those questions. Ariadne at one point says, Maul is not real. Fisher, Fisher is real. And his experience yeah. is about to be trapped. He's about to be trapped in limbo until his mind turns to jelly. Right. Saito is real, but Maul is not real. They bank on the question of subjective first-person experience. Like there are real people experiencing this world. Uh-huh. And that's what makes reality the most real. Because our ex- our real personal experience of reality matters. Well, and the experience of others yeah. Like we didn't create others. We could create our own dreamscape, yeah. but we didn't create the people around us. You can kill a projection, but in reality, you can't kill other people because they have a whole world that like their perception. That's good. The place that I see relationships tying Dom to reality the most throughout the whole thing is the faces of his kids. Yeah. So he's constantly subconsciously reaching out for his children and he sees them playing in the landscape of all of these dream levels. And it's always the same scene, which I just think is so brilliant. Um, yeah. It's like deja vu. They're playing in the street. Then they're playing, you know, like in all of these places, but th- they never turn around. He can never see their faces while he's in the dream world. Yeah. Do you know, I have a theory about this. What's that? He kind of shows Ariadne his, um, his top as if that's his totem. And there's a lot of fan theories about this. Some people would say, well, that's not his totem. That's Maul's totem that he's adopted um, as a symbol of his guilt for having destroyed her. Interesting. But what is his original totem? And some people, I think the popular theory is that his totem is his ring. Because if you're paying attention, he's only wearing his ring in the scenes that are in a dream. But when he's not in a dream, he's not wearing his wedding ring, which is to say reality is his wife is actually dead. He's not married anymore. But in the dream, he's trying to keep her alive. So he is married. Chris Nolan. Genius. I have another theory. Take it or leave it. I think his kids are his totem. Mm. My first thought is he can't see the faces of his kids in the dream because of that moment. It's like he's stuck in that moment where he could have called out to them and he didn't. In his dreams, he can never get past that moment, right? 
He, he almost calls out, but he can't, and he never gets to see their faces. So until he gets back to the real world, he will never see their faces again. And that is the thing that drives him. That kind of plays into what you were just saying about how relationship, his relationship with his kids, seeing the faces of his kids in real life is the thing that will keep him going towards reality. That's why the dream world isn't enough for him. Yeah, I definitely think the audience was in mind with the kids because to us, that's like a clear marker of reality. Like us mm. watching the film, Dom might be confused at times or you know, people dreaming might not know they're in a dream, but for the audience watching it, I truly believe the central premise of this movie is resolved when those kids turn around and we see their faces. I actually cried like a baby this time when I watched it, Carlin. Dude, I, I cry I like a, a baby every time. I'm such no. a sap. No, it's masterful. It's a masterful story. It is beautiful because, and he says this to Molly, he says, I can't imagine you with all of your complexity, all of your perfection, all of your imperfection. And that mm -hmm. goes for every other person on this planet. And so there yeah. comes a time when he does have to grieve the loss and move on. And when he goes home and those kids turn around, that I think is the film saying definitively, this is reality. This is real life. And it's worth it to be here. I think you totally nailed this. This was a piece that was missing for me, but I wrote down the same quote as you when he's talking to Maul about the reason Cobb gives for not being able to stay with her in limbo. And he says, she's like, we could grow old together. And he's like, we did grow old together. You're forgetting. We did have our time together. We had a beautiful life and it ended sadly. But the version of you in my head is just not as good as the yeah. real thing. Reality is better. Even when it's sad and hard and brutal, it's better to live in reality than to live in a dream world. Yeah. That also makes sense of like the appropriate quote unquote place of like dream sharing, because as long as you're in there with other real people, there's a sense in which those experiences are meaningful as well, given the reality yeah. of the other people. But the minute we know that it's there's no ghost in the shell, it's a projection of our subconscious. Mm. It robs that experience of genuine meaning. So then you can just shoot the projections. I guess, yeah. I mean, in a really like straightforward, like on the <laughs> nose level, yeah, just shoot them. But also just, you're not going to be convinced by your vision of your former wife if you know it's yeah. just a psychological projection. And so the core of the movie is saying reality is found in relationships with other people. Hey, you know something? You haven't said Michael Caine. And is that something you would like to do? Well, I just was like expecting it. And I think um, I'm a little surprised. Michael Kite, Michael my, Kite. You know what? My totem is that you are saying Michael Kite. Michael Kite. Because that could never be replicated. My Michael Kane <laughs> impression is so good. It basically it's, is like having Michael Kite. It's better than Michael Kane. <laughs> I once knew a bloke. I once met a man who wanted to burn down. It's a, all right, but I mean, that's not my real impression. I could do it so much better. I once met a man who drowned to death. He drowned to death. He always starts a sentence like that. Why do we fall, Master Bruce? Ah, Michael Caine. So, Carlin, given one, <laughs> given one uh, theme from the movie, which is that the relationships ground you in what's real, uh, even more so than like the uh -huh. actual experience of what's real, although that matters too, but given that, the major impediment for Cobb, mm -hmm. the thing keeping him living in this fantasy world that's so unhealthy and endangering all these other people, is his sensation of of guilt. And at first I wanted to just say uh -huh. it's this movie is about like healing and moving on from grief. 
And it is definitely about that. But I actually realize they bring it to even a finer of a point because Ariadne says, your guilt is what defines her. And then she says, but you're not responsible for the idea that destroyed her. <gasps> but he but is. But he is responsible for the and, idea that And we don't her. know that yet in the movie. Yeah. But then we do this whole, he tells her later, I broke in. I incepted her. He confesses to her. Yeah. To Maul. To Maul. And when she says, you keep telling yourself what you know, but what do you believe? What do you feel? He says, I feel guilt. I feel guilt, Maul. Because no matter what I do, no matter where I go, I... I can't stop thinking about the core truth that the idea that caused you to doubt your reality came from me. In doing that, he's actually then choosing to step out of his fantasy where she's alive and everything's fine and acknowledge at least the interpersonal reality of his guilt in her yep. demise. That's insane. I was going to ask you this question. Remember I mentioned catharsis? Yeah. I was kind of thinking along the lines of, is catharsis, catharsis they define as just a, a positive emotional reaction. And they kind of use catharsis as their tool. It's like the delivery system that's going to get Fisher to change his mind. But I kind of wanted to ask you, uh, is, is catharsis just a tool in this movie? But what you're saying proves that no, it's not. There's something, like, to help me understand. That's a really good question, honestly, Car. Well, because it kind of gets to the idea that this is like truly a heist movie. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they are like kind of outside the law. They are criminals illegally tampering with people's minds. Yes, they are. But remember, there's this moment where um, he's like, aren't we casting like all this horrible doubt onto his only positive relationship in his life? Who's the uncle? His, his like godfather or whatever? Right. And he's like, no, we're actually exposing him for the slimy eel that he is. We should charge Fisher a lot more than Sido for this job. How convenient. <laughs> While reconciling his relationship with his dad. So, yeah, I think what they're getting at there is like Fisher is he's the job and he's. And so they start off by saying like, yeah, catharsis, they have a more cynical view of like what it is. It's like strictly professional. We need this to happen for this. But yeah. what Inception then does is raises the stakes because actually to survive this thing, Cobb actually needs to deal with his inner demons and find catharsis for real. Yeah. He can't just meddle with other people's catharsis and call it a day. He has to deal with his inner problems or he's going to live in limbo for the rest of his life till his mind turns into jelly. Right. Which is a fate worse than death, and honestly. He's going to take other people with him also. Yeah. Yeah. And so what they do there I think is brilliant because it takes something uh, like interesting and then makes it intensely personal. The interesting thing being... What is catharsis? Like the question that you asked, like, is catharsis just a tool? Yeah, catharsis is interesting purely psychologically, but it matters because it is real. Yeah. And Inception forces us to deal with the reality of broken relationships and how we fix them. Yeah. It's not enough to run. It's not enough to just deal with other people's problems from afar. Uh-huh. And I mean, he, I'll just say that like with Fisher, he definitely is a side character and yeah. it's like a convenient plot device that what they're doing is good for him. Right. But they would still be doing it even if it wasn't. <laughs> probably. Probably. I guess. Probably. It makes us feel a little bit better about it. 
Dom doesn't kill anyone. He says that's not the way I deal with things. So that we can be grateful for that. But like, he's a thief. He's a thief. Yeah, he's a thief. Yeah. So anyway, that's like morally ambiguous. But like, thank goodness that they actually do do something good for Fisher, even if they deceive him entirely. Right. To do it. Right. Which, and they kind of draw this distinction, Inception feels like way more serious operation than extraction. Stealing something, I mean, I'm not condoning stealing, but Incepting, because they're operating on the promise that ideas can come to define everything about you, Inception is serious business. Right. And we, again, proven by how literally Inception killed Maul. I wonder what would happen, this is like, outside the scope of the film, but if Dom had said to Maul, hey, I spun the top in your mind. Yeah. I was the one who did that. What would what would she think? You know, like if he had confessed earlier. I don't before she before she died, like do you think that could have saved her? If she came face to face with the fact the way he does at the end, realizes that this idea has been manipulated or isn't real. Yeah. And she could come to terms with the idea that I have isn't real. Right. Um, because it came from you, maybe she wouldn't believe it as strongly. But it's almost like he isn't ready to do that. His guilt is so strong that even if it would have helped her, he Dom is just incapable of facing that reality. He thinks he can deal with it his way, which is the dysfunction that he's living into for the entire yeah. movie up till the very end. Yeah, he thinks he can just work the system, play, get away from his guilt. He'll never have to fess up and face up. Right. But the truth is... Well, let's not talk about the truth is, let's talk about our third point. Let's go. What does a Christian worldview have to say about all this? So Carlin, as I've been thinking about that power of ideas bit, here's the question I wanted to ask you. Okay. Is there one central Christian idea that is powerful enough to change your life. Yeah, I there totally is. I mean, there's a lot of ideas within Christianity that are powerful enough to change your life. But the the main one being that God loves you and that he loves you so much that he was willing to send his son to die for you. Hmm. Like that is enough to um, melt a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Um, and we can see examples of people whose lives have been turned around by that truth. Right. My friend, Tom Terrence, I'm lucky enough to call him a friend. He was a mentor of mine back at the job that I was working previously. Tom was literally in the Ku Klux Klan as a young man in the 1960s. He was involved in a a failed firebombing attempt of a Jewish leader's house. The FBI literally drove him down, and he was in a shootout where his— Uh, A girl who was with him was shot and killed by the FBI. Tom went to jail for a very long time. But in prison, he encountered Christ. And it changed everything for him. He was able to Mm. look back on his former life and say, this was wrong, what I was doing to people. And, And then, get this, he was able to reach out to the very same people that he was trying to kill and ask for their forgiveness. And he received it. They forgave him. So like his relationship with people of color and Jewish people radically transformed. He wrote a book about it, by the way. It's called Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love by yeah. Tom Terrence. I mean, that that's one of the most dramatic examples I can think of. Yeah. But it's happening in our hearts all the time. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, Carlin. I would, I would point to the truth of Christianity as definitively impacting my outlook of the world. 
mm-hmm. there for every Christian, there's a moment where you say, am I going to stick with this? Am I going to, am I going to live like it's actually true? Like, um, or am I going to kind of set my sights on other things, you know? Yeah. Do you remember the conversation we have had a while ago, um, where I asked you who, or you asked me, someone asked someone else, who would you be right now if you had never decided to follow Jesus with your life? Yeah. Like what, what kind of person would you be? Do you remember? Yeah. That, that conversation? Yeah, definitely. What would you say? Well, I mean, on the surface, I think I would probably appear like a pretty good person, but I can, I can sense the difference in my heart. Like, like since the, since when I decided to follow Jesus and, and dedicate my life to him, it's like other people became way more real to me. Hmm. I remember I was in high school when, um, I felt like the Lord really called me to follow him forever. And I just remember the overwhelming thought being like the other people around you, this is, this is crazy. I didn't mean for this to apply so much to a conversation about inception, but honestly, the other people around you are just as beloved as you are. And you're looking at them like you're better than them. And that was like the unifying theme in my kind of quote unquote conversion story was like, God was humbling my feelings of self-importance and showing me that the people around me, because I was very judgmental and and angry at the time. I, I would just look at people, my whether it was like family <laughs> or my friends or just people that I didn't even know, I would just see them in the same room as me. And I would look at them with all this judgment and comparison and think about all the ways that I was better than them. And God just kind of blasted that in me. And it didn't go away. Like I still uh, struggle with feelings of pride and superiority and whatever. But like, I know that I know that I know in my heart that I'm called to love those people as better than myself. Like not that any one person is better than another, but that in my heart, the way I deal with people is with a higher priority. Wow. Than how I should deal with myself. And again, I don't do that perfectly, but he actually changed my desire. Like I actually want to love people and I want to value them when I'm at my best. It's like, and that was not there. I promise you that was not there before I became a Christian. Did that happen overnight for you or was it a process? No, um, there's a metaphor that our mom always uses that really rings true for me. It was like um, the slow dawn before the sun comes up. The sky gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And then all of a sudden the sun peeks through. But you realize it's been light for about an hour now. Um, And I think that was probably like he was whispering to me and calling me and like leading me up to this point. And then there was a moment when I was on my knees and he was like, this is what I've called you to. And and that's when it. I made a a vow in my heart that no matter how far away I would stray, I would always come back to Jesus as my Lord. Hmm. Um, But yes, it was like he, he brought me, he took my hand and he led me right up to the ledge. And then, and then there was that moment. That's so powerful. I mean, and you felt like the message in your heart was actually one that revealed a way that you weren't living as well as you thought you were, right? Yes. Like it almost yeah. was a little bit, like a little droplet of guilt <laughs> that made you go, totally. I've been treating people terribly. Yes. But you know, it's funny because the word guilt doesn't quite capture it because the moment that I was able to be honest with it, it lost its power over me. Like I, um, yeah. it felt more like relief than anything else because the struggle in your heart when you're like, I'm better than you. It's exhausting. 
to always have to keep up the charade. And I would bicker. Do you remember you and I would bicker all the time about like, I don't know. Oh, just I remember. Stuff, but I had to be right. And and there was a moment when um, I, I broke something of yours. Um, like I... I I, it doesn't matter you what did was, Wait, i had you, break? you had a cool thing you break? it was a contact juggling ball do you remember it's like a clear ball no but now um, i'm upset that you broke it it was no don't it, it, <laughs> think of a new example just kidding just no, kidding sorry go ahead it was go so ahead. cool and i scu- i dropped it and scuffed it so that it didn't work anymore like it broke the illusion and you found it the next day and you're like did you break this and i was like <laughs> oh no oh no and in but in i remember the struggle in my brain i was like okay uh, i can say well it wasn't my fault or i could say oh i i don't know i don't think so or i could say i was thinking of all these little like ways to get out of it and instead i was like well why don't i just say the truth and then i did and it was like it that that was so easy like wow it, it, i mean it sucked but it was so much easier than struggling and trying to like clamp down on the uncomfortableness of it like it just made it like there's a way out and the way out is just face the music yeah. you know and then th- you're actually way more forgiving of a brother than i probably made it out to be in my, in my brain <laughs> no and like in my in my heart too there's probably a truth there that's like you know what buddy it's a ball it's a little toy <laughs> <laughs> your sister matters more and that's not the truth yeah. that i want to hear i want to be like it's my stuff you know but the but jesus does say Forgive, like forgive, forgive, even if it's a serious offense, let alone some minor thing. So I'm reminded of Jesus's words in John chapter eight, where he says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yeah. That feels like an extremely applicable core teaching of Christianity Mm. that is powerful enough to change individual lives when we internalize it can i ask a clarifying question in that verse what is he setting you free from what does the truth set you free from yeah i mean a little bit later he says jesus says very truly i tell you everyone who sins is a slave to sin Uh uh-huh a slave to sin and he says now a slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever So there's so much happening there. I mean, the truth Mm. that Jesus is here to tell us about is twofold. One sounds like bad news, but it's just the truth. Whether we believe it or not, it's Mm. there nagging at the back of our minds, a little bit like Cobb's feeling of guilt or Carlin's feeling of guilt or any of our, (laughs) like any of our feelings that actually do map onto reality. We've all done bad things. We've all rebelled against the creator. Like Jesus is saying, you are a slave to sin and you don't even realize it. When someone says that to you, it makes you bristle and go, uh, I don't want to hear that. Like that's not, that can't be true. Right. And the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to are like, are you kidding me? Back up, son. We're sons of Abraham. We've never been anyone's slave. Yeah. Which is ironic on two levels. First of all, they were slaves of the Roman empire. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and Egypt before that. Yeah. Rome said jump, they said how high. But second of all, they miss that he's talking about a spiritual reality and they bristle. They're like, what are you talking about, slave? I'm not a slave, I'm free. And that's why Jesus is so hard, by the way, on these religious people who Mm -hmm. had just enough religion to cover the, the areas of their heart. I mean, that's a good warning for everyone who grew up in church or around Christian teachings. Yeah, It's like, it's not enough to just follow the trappings of it. Jesus is coming for your heart. Right. You might convince yourself that you're all good and you don't need it because 
you're doing all the right things and you're surrounded right. by the right people and you're saying the right words. Right. But that could that could ensnare you into thinking that you've done the hard work when you really haven't. Yeah. And so the first part of Jesus's message is like, you're a slave to sin. But the second yeah. part of his message is, so first of all, he's willing to tell us the truth. Yeah. If it were any other way, Jesus wouldn't say it just to get us involved in his religion. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like Jesus' <laughs> yeah. firm commitment is to the truth as the God who made everything. He's here to tell us a truth that we once knew but have chosen to forget. Ooh. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> slip that in. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's that, yeah, we're slaves. But then the second part is that you can be free. You can be mm. free of this if you walk in the light of that truth, mm. which is that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of him. Mm. And, and surrender, essentially, their whole lives and just say, God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong. Yeah. Will you forgive me? It's that simple. Yeah. And the truth is he, will, he does and he will. Yeah. And that changes everything because then you're living life with freedom. Like, like you're a child, like you're a son and an heir. You're like beloved by God no matter what you do. Yeah, the truth is just unimaginably sweet. Yeah. But if you don't come face to face with the fact that you need forgiveness, yeah. you never, you don't get the reward because you don't think you need it. Ah, so that plays so perfectly into the second question, Carlin. What, yeah. what is reality in a Christian worldview? Well, how about I just ask you that question? Wiki, 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 wiki reverse, reverse. It, what is reality in a Christian worldview? Yeah. I mean, even in recording this Inception episode, I've been chewing on that because there's like a really esoteric heavy-handed version, like, what is reality? You know, that in philosophy, <laughs> that's called ontology. It's uh, like, what is actually there? Like, what is reality? You like, know? you're trying to get to the, the scratch into the deepest, furthest question. Yeah. And boy, you could just muddy your head <laughs> thinking about that, as, as, as I have, and, and we have done, even talking about this yeah. movie, is like, like how do we know head. we're not dreaming? And it's like, it kind of, those questions run out pretty quick in my, in my imagination. I'm like kind of bored with it already. Like, right. okay, so we could keep asking what and why and what and why and what, but how does that affect <laughs> our day-to-day -day lived experience? It doesn't. Exactly. Like you could keep asking those questions for an eternity. And to be honest, scripture doesn't really resolve them for us per se, except, except with this key piece, which is that we live in a reality that we didn't create. Like whatever the substance of reality, like, are we in a dream? <laughs> Potentially, you know, maybe we're all in God's dream. There's strains of philosophy that believe that. Weird. Or maybe what we mean by dream is something different. Or maybe like, no, it's just, it's, it's basically the physical world. Don't think too hard about it. But however, like the substance of reality is comprised. One thing is sure in a Christian worldview, which is that things matter in our mm -hmm. world because uh -huh. it's were created by a God whose idea reality is. It wasn't our idea first. Right. We are not like self-existent beings dreaming things up and then living into our dream. Right. Christianity reaffirms kind of what you were saying earlier, the basic reality that other people are real and that they matter uh -huh. and that you didn't create the world, God did. And so in that sense, more like we're discovering reality than... Yes creating it yes and i think jesus sums it up they come to him and they go jesus what's the what are the what's the greatest commandment 
Mm-hmm. And he says, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Huh. So when Jesus is asked, like, Jesus, what's the sum total of moral reality? He says, your relationship <laughs> with your creator and your relationship with the real, valuable other people around you. You need to love them just like you love yourself. Yeah. That's huge. That's crazy. And I think Inception lands at that same place. Like we were saying, like the most powerful moment is when Cobb sees the faces of his children. He's out of yeah. the illusion where all he can see is their backs because in the, yeah. in the dream world, it, you know, it's just him. Yeah. Other, well, than, other than the mission where he brings all the people in. Yeah, go ahead. You know, this really clarifies for me that last moment when we've had already some big revelations, right? We know that Cobb killed Maul. And we know that he's like going to face the music and let her go now. But she's like, we were going to grow old together and we can still do that. We can still grow old together in the dream. Isn't, and that can be good enough for you. And he's like, but don't you remember? We did grow old together. And we, it, they, all the time they spent together in limbo, they like lived a long and beautiful life together. It wasn't in the real world and it wasn't with their kids, but they did have time together. Yeah. And that wasn't pretend because Maul was alive at that right. point. Right. And that, so that is the truth. He did have good time with her and, and that makes it bearable for him to say goodbye. Hmm. Um, but he recognizes that, yeah, even though they're in a dream, like the fact that they're, they're actually able to share the dream is a meaningful life experience mm, that they mm. that they can hang their hat on that. He can say, I lived a life with my wife mm. and now I can let her go because what's yeah. left of her isn't real anymore. That's really insightful, Carlin. And I think it's bittersweet. I think it's meant to be bittersweet. Um, there's a sense in which sometimes we buy into this like romance narrative where it's like, all I need is that one other person to live my whole life with. Yeah, just you and me in the world. That's not true. (laughs) I just (laughs) want to say, that's not true. We all need lots of other people. Mm. And the movie, I think, just implicitly recognizes that. Like, like he he needs to get them out of that world because they were lost down there together, he said. Like, lost in their dream world. Yeah. But all that to say, the substance of what you're saying is right. I think it's right on. In that, yeah, she wants him to keep living in that fantasy and he needs to accept the way things are and move on. And just picture that moment. He wakes up and then he, he looks around the cabin and they all lock eyes and they're like, Yeah. What? Yeah. So trippy. Like, and each one of them has had this experience, a shared experience together. It's like we were saying earlier, what really happened? They were all asleep on a plane for 12 hours. <laughs> but, but what they've experienced, because they all experienced it, it's shared and they're real. Yeah. So that whatever happened in the dream is a meaningful, it's meaningful to them and to yeah. us and to reality. I can see real parallels here, Carlin, with, uh, on one hand, virtual reality and the advent of that, like VR tech. It's going to be so, or I guess augmented reality tech. Yeah. Um, it's going to be such a pervasive aspect of our lives, but also just yeah. like video games in general. Yeah. On one hand, there is, it's like both, it's both sides of this coin. On one hand, there's real fellowship that happens over digital Mm. platforms. Mm. And like, it's okay to sometimes live in a dream world where we have fun 
and we enjoy like the incredible creativity that these studios have put into these video games. And as and when you're with other people, that's when it's the most meaningful experience. And further, can I share with you a little interesting tidbit? Please do. I can't source this um, because I don't remember, but there was a lecturer that came to my undergraduate and gave a lecture on the, the dangers of video game violence. And one of the things I remember him saying was that vi- the, the effects on your brain from violence in a video game is like significantly lessened when you're doing a video game with other people, even if they're just in a headset. But if you're playing the game with people, the negative effects of violence on your v- on your brain are significantly diminished. But when you're playing like a, a FPC by yourself, it actually activates the centers of your brain that are violence and like destruction oriented. Is that wild? That is so crazy. But I see why. It's like we are made to like be drawn to stories, and video mm. games are an incredibly immersive powerful way of living into a story it's really Mm. alluring actually like like granted the beneficial side to it that we've said there's a dark side which is addiction where people Mm. like the people in the basement are all hooked up and they're asleep and they're not living i mean they're sharing a dream with each other but there's a sense in which we're meant to be grounded in reality yeah otherwise it messes with us like it can be everything we want it to be and still be bad for us in a sense so what inception is trying to say then is it matters to live in reality why i think it's because the fullest experience of other people can only be found in the real world where they are Mm. like cobb says it perfectly with all their imperfection Mm. where things aren't just amazing the way we want them to be yeah. Even when reality pushes back against us, it's like real people are in the real world. Some people are in the dream. You might be sharing the dream with some people or your wife or one person, but all people can't be in the dream. And we're right. meant to live our life in a world with all people in it. So it's like, yeah, the fact that they're real in the dream makes a significant difference as to dreaming by yourself. Right. But, but what matters is we live in a world full of people. And if you are isolating yourself from ever coming into contact with other people, then you're going to miss out on one of the truest and realest experiences of human existence. And not, not only that, but Dom's kids need him. Yeah. There's obligation there because they are real people, like we were talking about, who, who need their dad. Yeah. And to his credit, Dom is keenly aware of that the entire yeah. film. The, the trick, and this is just brilliant storytelling, is that he needs to keep entering the dream world so that he can get back to the real world. That's like his right. desperate struggle. So here's the critical piece our culture is missing. Mm. We're all about self-actualization, self-fulfillment. And mm-hmm. so answering the like, well, why not? Why not just live in a dream is really hard for us. Yeah. But the truth is other people need us and we have an obligation to them in the real world. And so mm-hmm. as badly as I would want to, like you, we asked like, what, what would you be like without Jesus in your life? There's an alternate version of Casey that spends all his time in like narratives, in stories, in video games, just like amusing yeah. myself. Forever and ever and ever. Yeah. And like isolating, like circle the wagons. I'm going to make a little haven that's comfy for me and I'm going to just tune out everyone else. Yeah. And except the people who just bring me immediate joy. You know, right. But the the trap there is that that's not true. That's not the truth. Like other people do have demands on us because the Mm -hmm. world is filled with suffering. 
And not only do we owe them, we owe our neighbor our the full amount of love that we would give ourselves, Jesus says. That hmm. is life-changing because you don't always like your neighbor, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But but actually, that's the source of freedom because that's that's where real joy is found. If you circle those wagons, you're going to find the circle just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. The number of people you meet who just immediately spark joy forever and always is uh, is a diminishing number. You know what I mean? And you love them less. Like, isn't it funny that the more you love people, the more you love them? Yeah. Like when you choose the actions of love, your heart actually expands and you can enjoy much more of yeah. people. But when you limit and you're like, oh, I'm, o- I'm only going to do the people that I like, th- pretty soon their flaws are going to start rubbing you the wrong way. And then you're going to have to shrink your circle and shrink it and shrink it and shrink it until all that's left is just you and you. And <laughs> yeah. then if you can't keep up the, um, like if you can't keep your own flaws out of that, which you can't, you're just going to end up being like total self-loathing yeah I mean, you're gonna be smeagol you know it's just like you and you and you hate yourself but you also love yourself oh my you gosh enough of yourself oh my gosh that's really profound actually i just read a an article in the palladium uh magazine of higher ed hmm. um where 70 percent of college students right now say that they are quote very sad and loneliness is a colossal driving factor behind yeah. that just yeah. 70%, Carlin, 70%. Yeah. I can't That's believe that. Easy. That's the majority of people probably who are going to listen to this podcast. And I wonder if we're all just falling for a, a lie, hook, line, and sinker, which is like focus on yourself, do more self-care. That's the secret to happiness. Yeah. When Jesus is telling us, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Your life's not about you. Right. Don't be afraid to sacrifice yourself for something bigger and better and experience the fullness of true life, even, mm. even when there's suffering to it sometimes. Yeah. So, Carlin, just translate all of that for us to grief. Like, how does a Christian worldview grapple with the idea of grief and catharsis? That's so good. Such a good question. Um, I just go back to something you said to me, actually, one time when you had just graduated from Taylor and we were driving back in the middle of the night because we had just gotten the phone call that Papa Al had passed away. That, uh, however, like 12 hour drive where we were all in the car together, our family driving, and we were just crying and telling stories and kind of grieving together. And I just remember you saying, sadness does not belong to the enemy. Like true sadness and grief belongs to God because what it means is something is not the way that it's meant to be. Christians kind of get a little weird about death, like because we talk so much about heaven. I think people can think that like death isn't a big deal to Christians because we minimize it and we and we talk about it in a way that feels like, oh, but it's not the end of the story. And yes, that is true. Like we have an unshakable hope in eternity. But that's not to say that death isn't an abomination. Like it is not meant to be part of our human experience. And the Christian has unique access to claim that because we know that the heart of God, yeah. he hates death. He, he did his whole rescue plan to save us from eternal death. And um, anyways, you, you mentioned that while we were on that drive and it just it felt like it gave me total permission to just be as sad as I possibly was about the loss of our beloved grandfather. And like, I didn't have to put a patch on it and be like, well, but it's okay. It's like, I could just experience it, the full reality of that loss, which is a healthy step for grief. 
yeah, it's a necessary step for grief. If you never do that, you'll just live in an unhealthy fantasy for the rest of your life and or you'll just be poisoned by regret. Like we do have full permission to just weep. I mean, here's the deal. Like it's Christian like pop culture that gives us those bad ideas about death and grief and sadness. It's never scripture. Scripture's deeply uncomfortable for yeah. people who don't want to deal with the reality of sadness in the world. <laughs> it really is a terrible, yeah. terrible book if you're just trying to live in just a happy, clappy world all the time. You know what I mean? Because it, it deals with it. It forces you yeah. to deal with it. But you're so right. There's mm-hmm. hope in that. And there's hope for, you know, Dom when he, there's grief mixed with guilt, but he needed to just like let it all out. Yeah. He needed to live in the light of the truth. Actually, I know it's such a minor detail, but again, everything in this movie matters. When he's just there with her at the very end, Ariadne has already taken the kick up mm-hmm. a level, so she's gone. But Dom is there with his wife, and mm-hmm. they're just like a goodbye as their like dream world collapses all around them. That's really important. Mm. It's really important so that he can then turn and love his children well. He needs to go through that process of saying actually goodbye. And it's heartbreaking and it's sad. And it's sad because it's not the way the Mm -hmm. world is meant to be. And we all know that. Even in a fictional world, it Mm. hits us because we know we shouldn't have to say goodbye to loved ones like this. The instinct, I don't remember where I heard this, but the instinct of love is to say forever. Yeah. I'll love you forever. Like that's been a part of the of love letters and love songs. Yeah. And not just romantic love, but all forms of love in our hearts. It, it, it's meant to be a forever thing. And so death feels like the biggest. Yeah. Like abomination in that because it's, it's, it ends it early, prematurely when it's not meant to be ended. The paradox of the gospel here is that actually, though we are all going to die, Christ is going to come again and bring resurrection from the dead. Just like he raised from the dead, everyone's going to be raised from the dead. Mm. And he's going to make all things new again. And so you have this complicated relationship with death for Christians. It's definitely not what Maul comes to believe. Like, it's the portal to a higher dimension, right? Death is an enemy, and we should rightly fight and kick and do not go gently into that good night. You know what I mean? And yet, At the same time, death has no ultimate grounding for existential terror. So all that to say, Christianity gives you the tools to to deal with grief in a healthy way. So Inception and Christianity basically are are the same thing. A lot of agreement. (laughs) Just kidding. No, no, no. no. (laughs) But they are in agreement in in totally affirming that reality matters. Right. More than that, truth matters. Bringing things into the light. And other people and their experiences, these are the things that that make up reality and are the most important parts. And it's an incredible story because it does that with so much integrity. It doesn't break the fourth wall with us. It's not like preaching. It's just telling an insanely good story on the premises that it has. And what it does is reveal core truths about the way that the world actually is in our world. You know what I mean? Stories are where we wrestle with the hard problems of reality. Stories make the intellectual emotional. You should write a book. You should coin that. I think there's only one thing left to say, and that's, Casey, there's a lot of interesting totems in this movie, and I want to know, what is your totem? I mean, 
Well, I, it's like there's not many unique items in my life that I would be like, this is sweet. I want this to define. Okay, I'll tell you. Can I what? just tell you my totem? You tell me. Tell me and yours. And then you tell yeah. me yours. Tell me Mine yours. is that in the dream, my phone is always charged. But in real life, <laughs> my phone is almost always below 12% battery. And that's yeah. how I know. That's how I know it's not a dream. <laughs> you know, I feel like I would know I was in a dream because I'd immediately be in my underwear. That oh, happens that's a, lot. a good totem. I think that's that'd be my totem is like, oh shoot, I'm not wearing pants. It's not very secret. <laughs> no, but <laughs> my totem is that my teeth are crumbling out of my mouth. If it's real life, my teeth stay, and if it's in a dream, my teeth crumble teeth out. Teeth crumble out. See you next time.